Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Starting today, those of us who are vaccinated can remove our masks in most indoor settings. But school kids inside classrooms will have to remain masked, at least for now. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. In two weeks, California's head of health and human services, Mark Galley, says the state will lay out a timeline for when schools can move to lift their mask mandates, if they so choose. Masking requirements were never put in place to be there forever. Uh, It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. He says while Omicron cases and hospitalizations are dropping fast, we have a long way to go to get all kids vaccinated. Just 25 percent of those who are eligible have gotten their shots. Therefore, masks remain a really important tool in keeping kids from getting the virus. But in Simi Valley Unified in Ventura County, District Superintendent Jason Paplinski thinks the time for separate school masking criteria has passed. You know, myself and my colleagues, parents in our community and our students are looking for an answer to when this ends. Like, when do we step out of this phase? We can't stay in it forever. And frankly, we can't stay in it for much longer because reasonable people are losing their patience. Peplinski says vaccines are available to students and teachers everywhere now. The decision to wait on lifting the mask mandate for schools involved many stakeholders, including labor unions, said Galley. Jeff Friedis is head of the California Federation of Teachers. He says a timeline makes sense. The bigger discussion is the, the timing of this because it needs to not only be based on science, but also something that can be implemented at schools. If something were announced today and to say this changes tomorrow, that disrupts an education system. Freda says unlike going to a restaurant, attending school is mandatory, and schools have a higher level of responsibility to keep everyone safe, including in communities that have the highest case rates and the lowest vaccination rates. Other states have already moved to lift mask mandates in schools, including Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Oregon, and New Jersey. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. Meanwhile, a school district in Roseville is taking a different approach. Starting today, some students there will no longer be required to wear masks at school. The Roseville Joint Union High School District Board of Trustees voted in a meeting last week to make face coverings optional in defiance of the state's mandate for schools. One of the parents who spoke during public comment was Michelle Peterson. I'm just asking that you give our kids the choice, especially when... The people that are supposed to be governing us, our governor, our mayors, are flaunting it and slapping them in the face. That you can go into Target on Tuesday, but you may not sit in the classroom to be educated for our future. 
The district says it will continue to provide N95 masks to students and teachers who want them, and has no plans to start mandatory testing for asymptomatic students. California voters are increasingly unhappy with the job Governor Gavin Newsom is doing to address the major issues facing California. That's according to a new Berkeley IGS poll. But KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer says it's not all bad news for the governor. This report card on the governor's job performance is decidedly mixed, with voters split right down the middle on whether they approve or disapprove of the job he's doing. But they give Newsom especially bad grades on handling two issues, crime, where just 20 percent give him excellent or good grades, and homelessness, with only 11 percent liking the job he's doing there. Pollster Mark Camillo says it's not just Republicans who are unhappy. Some Democrats are starting to view the problems that are facing the state as problems that Uh, you know, the governor should be doing something about it and they're getting frustrated. One upside for Newsom, two-thirds of voters think the situation with the pandemic is getting better. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. UC Berkeley on Monday asked the state Supreme Court to stay a ruling that it says could cut new undergraduate enrollment for next year by as much as a third. An Alameda County Superior Court judge last week ordered the university to cap enrollment at levels seen in the 2020 to 2021 academic year. The ruling came out of a 2019 lawsuit arguing an environmental impact study is needed for enrollment increases. Officials said enrollment dropped during the pandemic and capping it will mean rejecting many students and losing nearly $60 million in tuition revenue. With California's mask mandate ending in most indoor settings after today, some health experts agree that it's the right time to ditch face coverings. But others think it's best to continue, at least for now, with a more cautious approach. Dr. Abrar Karan is an infectious disease physician with Stanford University School of Medicine. He says his main concern is that the lifting of the mandate is coming at a time when the state is still seeing thousands of new COVID cases a day. Public health officials should be going off data. As somebody that worked on the Massachusetts state response in 2020, we settled where our test positivity rate was below 2% when things were relatively under control and things were, and you know, society was generally open in Massachusetts at that time. And we didn't see a big outbreak when that incidence was around that level. I'll use that as a benchmark. Last week in California, we were still at 8% test positivity. You know, to me, we're still not there yet. Karan says the dramatic decline in cases and hospitalizations in recent weeks is a good sign, but would have preferred the state hold off a few more weeks until test positivity numbers drop even further than the 6% they're at now. When it comes to masking in schools, Dr. Karan says one of the big challenges moving forward is the stigma attached with face coverings especially in, in the school environment, you know, there'll be a lot of social pressures. If everybody else is unmasked, a kid may feel like, why do they have to mask? Karan says for parents who are still concerned about their kids once the mask mandate is lifted, they should get them a comfortable KN95 mask to help protect them. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And 
I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. San Francisco's district attorney says police use DNA information from the victim of a sexual assault to identify and arrest them in a separate crime. DA Chesa Boudin says that led to the discovery that police routinely check sexual assault victims' DNA for links to other crimes. While victims' DNA is banned from national law enforcement databases, Boudin says the local practice raises legal and ethical concerns. This local policy is a much smaller universe of potential matches. So I suppose that's a good thing from the standpoint of protecting victims' privacy, but it, it doesn't go nearly far enough. Boudin is calling for an end to using DNA collected from sexual assault victims for anything but prosecuting their assailant. Police say the suspect may have been identified by other means. In a statement, San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott said that if it's true DNA collected from a rape or sexual assault victim was used by the department to identify and apprehend that person as a suspect in another crime, he is committed to ending the practice. More than a dozen antitrust bills targeting big tech are in play in the nation's capital right now, and Silicon Valley has gone full court press to kill or soften the legislative attack. This game is fast and confusing and hard to follow, so we asked KQED's Rachel Myro to give us the courtside view from our Silicon Valley desk. These bills primarily target Amazon, Apple, Google, and Meta. These four have become many things to many people, but they are all multi-billion dollar giants in advertising. Also, other specialties like retail, apps, entertainment. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, one of the lawmakers leading the antitrust charge, has acknowledged the odds are daunting. Because we are up against a lot. We have two lawyers on our staff that do antitrust, and the tech companies have 2,500 lobbyists and probably 10,000 lawyers. Also, tech-funded think tanks, whose talking points are remarkably consistent and also possibly accurate. Baron Soka of Tech Freedom in D.C., for instance, argues many of the bills are rushed and poorly written. And he warns Democrats the efforts to win support from key Republicans has meant there are ticking time bombs in the bills that could explode on Democrats and their allies the next time Republicans regain control of the White House. We are legislating the way that that cartoon shows the railroad bridge being built out over the canyon as the train is going, except we don't even know what the bridge looks like or where it's going. 
You'll hear remarkably similar concerns from many in the California delegation, including both U.S. senators as well as congressional representatives like Zoe Lofgren of Silicon Valley. There's the rushed, poorly written legislation argument. There's the weaponizing the law in ways that could favor Republicans' argument. And last but not least, there's the worry that too many of the bills target just four self-dealing monopolies. One of the amendments that I offered was uh, they had written it in such a way that it very cleverly exempted Microsoft, even though Microsoft is as big as, you know, some of the other companies being targeted. Lofgren and others who voiced objections continue to take money from the likes of Amazon, Google, and Meta. Does that money influence her position? Lofgren says no. Well, I think that's obvious baloney. And if that were the case, Anna and I would not have introduced our privacy bill, which is, you know, would require actually a huge change in the business model of any uh, tech company that uses, uh, relies on the data of its users. The Online Privacy Act Lofkin reintroduced with fellow Silicon Valley Congresswoman Anna Eshoo is considered a serious attack on the trade in personal data that's bread and butter for mega conglomerates these days. And it's not the only bill considered a serious threat by the likes of Google CEO Sundar Pichai, speaking here during a recent earnings call. We are genuinely concerned uh, that they could break a wide range of popular services we offer to our users, uh, all the work we do to make our products safe, private, secure, etc., and, and in some cases can hurt American competitiveness by disadvantaging solely U.S. companies. Dr. Jennifer King follows data and privacy for the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. She's not holding her breath for this Congress to act on any kind of revolutionary reform. One big reason why? She says both political parties have grown quite fond of using targeted advertising themselves. We now have a legislative structure that's just as dependent on those data practices that the commercial sector is dependent on, behavioral targeting and marketing practices that are really at issue in all these cases. The only thing everybody seems to agree on is some kind of new legislation is needed, if only to bolster funding of federal regulators. But what kind of legislation exactly? That's where the consensus falls apart. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro in Menlo Park. Undocumented women in California earn just 49 cents to every dollar made by white men. That's according to a new report from the Gender Equity Policy Institute out today. KQED's Michelle Wiley has more. The report, which uses data from the Census Bureau's American Community Survey between 2015 and 2019, found that the poverty rate among undocumented women in the state was nearly 21%. They're also paid less for similar work than all other California workers. Nancy Cohen is president of the Gender Equity Policy Institute. About two-thirds of undocumented adult women are in the labor force, so that's a pretty high labor force participation rate. But because of their low earnings, they're really struggling to make ends meet in California, which we all know is a very expensive state. Cohen noted that the data comes from before the pandemic, which raised inflation rates and decimated the job market. So the situation today may be even more dire. For the California Report, I'm Michelle Wiley. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, February 15th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. 
Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system on the web at chcf.org health-equity. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.